Welcome back to People's History of the Old Republic, episode 6.7, Visions Quest. Last time we talked about the canonization of Revan, stirred up a hornet's nest on Onderon, and defended Dantooine from the exchange. Now we have a heart-to-heart with Jedi Master Vruk Lamar, then head to Korriban to face our fears via some trippy force visions and dual Darth Sion. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. Uh, podcast business. Earlier today, a brief episode that contains some podcast business was released. If you haven't listened to it yet, and I don't know why you would have, all it says is that the show is taking a short narrative break that will last roughly a couple, roughly two months from today, January 3rd, 2020, and last until early March. We really wanted to finish up, uh, Knights of the Old Republic 2 first, but taking the bar exam is getting in the way, and we can't, and we really don't want to fail to do the game the justice it deserves. In the meantime, we're going to have some cool new episodes covering different topics in Star Wars. While I will be on some of these episodes, Kelsey will mostly be running the show. <clears throat> in order to get the narrative to a good holding point for the hiatus, This episode will finish up the first trip to Dantooine and make a few quick stops to finish SideQuest. Then we will talk a little about M478, the droid planet that was cut, and Sirik's actions on Korriban. Once we finish on Korriban, this will serve as the end of the unofficial second act of Knights 2. Act 1 involved the escape from Paragus and the events on Citadel Station in Telos 4. Act 2 is Sirik's search for the scattered Jedi Masters across Nar Shaddaa, Onderon, Daxun, Dantooine, and Korriban. Act 3 is Endgame, which is saving the Republic, rebuilding the Jedi Order, the Battle of Telos 4, and the final showdown on Malachor 5. Sure, it's probably better to say that Act 2 ends after the second trip to Dantooine, but that's not helpful to us today, now is it? Right, so, Knights of the Old Republic 2, Part 7. Corban, M478, and some loose ends. We left off last time with the Battle of Kunda ending in a resounding victory for the Kunda Militia, led by Mitra Surik, Vruk Lamar, and Zeron. The victory evicted the exchange from Dantooine and did much to repair the image of the Jedi amongst the citizens. Despite being outnumbered more than 4-1 to one by a group of battle-hardened mercenaries, Surik was able to rally more troops, repair the defenses, heal militia members, and give a stirring speech to rally the defenders of Kunda. The battle that was fought once again shows the personal nature of the story in KOTOR 2. A tiny skirmish that probably included less than 500 total combatants goes down as one of the most important battles of the Sith Civil War, which began in 3955. Hell, as far as we can tell, the Battle of Kunda is the first Republic or Jedi victory of any kind against the Sith since the destruction of the Star Forge five years earlier. In the aftermath, the exile is thanked by Tarina Adare and offered a handsome reward of 4,000 credits for the assistance. Humorously, the exile can take a dark side alignment shift by demanding that the people build a statue to their heroism. Surik would never do such a thing and is content to finally get to speak with a Jedi Master and get some answers. Unfortunately, the Master is Vruk Lamar, so we're unlikely to get anything more than condescension. But we must talk. Well, it's not true. The dark side playthrough allows the exile to slaughter each of the Masters to avenge their exile and betrayal at the hands of the Council. We won't be doing that, of course, but it is an option. Vruk begins, oddly enough, by thanking Surik for helping defend Kunda and admitting that he might have misjudged her. That's the only introspection we're going to get, though, as Master Lamar turns back into an asshole almost immediately. He repeats much of the same information we got from Master Zezkael about hiding from the Sith after Qatar and trying to lure them out, but Vruk seems to realize it might not be working. By now, the Sith should have revealed themselves as they seem to have achieved total victory by wiping out the Jedi Order. Despite their big talk about a plan to split up and lure the Sith out, 
the Jedi are noticeably unprepared. Almost five years and they still haven't realized these Sith are different. The Sith Civil War should have been their first indication after the feuding warlords consolidated power under the Sith Triumvirate. They did not seek to openly attack the Jedi or to create political power bases by which they could rule the galaxy. They stuck to the shadows in dark places, waiting for deliberate chances to strike. You would think that the Jedi would have realized something was up after their enemy rallied under one banner, but didn't open, openly strike against the barely functioning Republic. The Sith had numerical superiority over the Jedi due to all the dark Jedi turned by Revan, Malak, and later the Sith Triumvirate, and had a large enough fleet to combat the Republic. This should have been the big indication that the Sith weren't interested in their typical Imperial power grab, but had other ideas. Fueled by the emotions of the dark side, the Sith Lords, Darth Treya, Darth Nihilus, and Darth Sion each had their own motivations and goals. Treya relied on anger and betrayal to f fuel her desire to see the Jedi crushed and the Force itself destroyed, though knew, no one knew that yet. Nihilus used his hunger for power to fuel the wound in the Force he carried and sought to destroy all life in the universe, both to feed on the life energies and to stop the incessant chaos created by living things. Sion unleashed his desire for revenge and anger against the Jedi to initiate a campaign to obliterate the Order. None of these resembles the blatant power grabs attempted by Naga Sadao and Exar Kun and Ulic Keldroma in years past, nor of the secretive takeover by Darth Sidious one thousands of years later. Even after the overthrow of, Tre of Treya, Nihilus and Sion attacked with more impunity, but never attempted to strike at the Republic in any meaningful way. In fact, the Battle of Telos IV, which would be the only open attack by the Sith fleet against the Republic fleet, only occurred because of lies intended to lure Darth Nihilus there. Somehow, after all this, the Jedi still think these are the traditional Sith in for an old-fashioned power grab. Vruk is shocked that the exile... Well, knows about Qatar as though it's some huge secret. Even Atten knows about it, and he's Atten. Vruk describes the loss of so many Jedi at Qatar, but also the loss of his closest friends, like Masters Zar Lustin and Dorak. Even though Vruk doesn't say it, Master Vandar Toker is confirmed to have died at Qatar in 3952, too. Despite Vruk Lamar being a total and complete asshole to us through two games, we can't help but feel a little sorry for him. He's a broken old man who failed his order and the galaxy. All his friends are dead. He admits he returned to Nantuin because of the great tragedies that occurred there and the wounds caused by it all. He also needed to see the world once more to see how much it had changed. Of course, Lamar becomes ornery again almost immediately. He says that they can't locate the Sith through the Force because they can totally mask their presence through some trick or ability. There are techniques that allow for an individual to intentionally mask their presence, but the ability to mask fleet movement is another thing entirely. Master Lamar also confesses that he came to determine what holocron or map the Sith used to locate their bases at academies and secret hideouts. These were attacked en masse during the first Jedi Purge. Vruk is concerned because the materials are out there in the galaxy being used to kill Jedi and stifle any future return of the Jedi. Then it's time for the old recriminations against Surik for defying the Jedi Order. Lamar says that the Jedi cast Surik out of the Order for following Revan, but he vehemently denies that the High Council cut her off from the Force. Both Zezkael and Vruk Lamar have told Surik that the Council didn't blind her to the Force, but Kryas said they did. So who should we believe? Finally, Surik gets down to brass tacks and asks what happened to her and why the Council truly felt the need to cast her out. She's able to pry a tiny bit of information for Vruk, saying that Master Kavar speculated about how the war had affected Surik, but then shutting down and refusing to give additional info. Looks like Kavar is the one Surik really needs to have a chat with. That's all Vruk will say without the council present to change their decision from earlier. Vruk believes that the Sith are, are in hiding, but both Darth Sion and Darth Nihilus have already attacked Surik, and Nihilus is openly helping Vaklu and his separatists on Onderon. Despite all of this, Lamar persists in the belief 
that the Sith are still in hiding. Nonetheless, Surik says there Surik says she's been targeted by these Sith, even though Vruk. <clears throat> let me start over. Nevertheless, Surik says she's been targeted by these Sith, even though Vruk believes she's been blinded to the Force and finds it curious that they believe her to be a Jedi. Regardless, Lamar consents that Surik is not lying about the Sith and agrees to reconvene the Jedi Council with any other masters Surik finds at the Jedi Enclave on Dantooine. The Enclave will be rebuilt by the time the Exile returns, and the Council can decide how best to confront the Sith from there. It's far more likely, though, that they're going to use that time to condemn the Exile again instead of focusing on the Sith, who are actively purchasing, purging them from the galaxy, but we'll get there. For now, that's all we're going to get from Vruk Lamar, except for a lightsaber tutorial. The Age of Jedi Master teaches Surik the art of Shein, also known as Form 5, a lightsaber fighting style that is good for deflecting blaster bolts and defending against multiple enemies at once. It is the same form that Anakin suck good heavens. It is the same form that Anakin Skywalker and Ahsoka Tano both employed during the Clone Wars animated series. Surik learns Shein in mere moments about byproduct of the innate talent she possesses, which allows her to form intense force bonds with other force users rapidly. This ability also causes Surik to influence others to follow her lead and causes her to exude a calmness that comforts her friends and followers. Despite the power of these bonds and attachments she forms, Surik does it subconsciously and has since she was a child. Natural affinity for certain Force powers is fairly common amongst Force users, both in Legends and Canon. You recall that nine-year-old Anakin Skywalker had preternatural reflexes and powerful Force visions in The Phantom Menace. Anakin also was also innately gifted at using the Force ability known as Animal Bond or Beast Trick, just like Tot Donita in Tales of the Jedi and Ezra Bridger in Rebels. Thus, Surik learns the form from Vruk Lamar quickly and that's it for the trip to Dantooine that brings us to Canon Alert 36 in a very recent edition the Jedi Enclave on Dantooine was canonized in September 2019 by Gadgets and Gear a source book for the Fantasy Flight Games tabletop Star Wars RPG a passing reference is made to a Jedi temple located on the Outer Rim world of Dantooine that doesn't mean that the Enclave as we know it is in the Old Republic has been canonized, just that a temple was there at some point. However, the Enclave is the only known Jedi temple on Dantooine, so this seems like a clear and intentional reference. The Jedi Enclave was introduced in the first issue of Tales of the Jedi Dark Lords of the Sith as the location where Jedi Master Vodosiosk Bas trained his students, most notably Exar Kun. Before the Ebon Hawk pushes on to Korriban, we've got a couple of loose ends to tie up. The first stop is at Citadel Station above Telos 4 to speak with Lieutenant Gren about a new source of fuel for the space station after the destruction of Paragus caused a shortage of low-cost fuel in the sector. Both Gren and Atris said that Citadel Station would fall out of orbit without a new fuel source within weeks. Surik arrives in Entertainment 081 and tells Gran about Voga the Hutt's agreement to provide fuel from his stores on Slayeron, a relief that will allow the Telos restoration project to continue, at least for now. Telos 4 isn't out of the woods just yet. We can also turn in one of those bounties from the bounty hunter duo we killed on the surface of Telos 4 much earlier in the game. Gran is thankful for any source of fuel, even though the Hutts are unreliable. Surik vouches for Volga after threatening his life and helping him sufficiently on Nar Shaddaa. After visiting Gren, the exile boards the Iban Hawk and goes to Nar Shaddaa to tell Volga of the agreement with Gren and help Kandris. Volga is happy to conclude the business while Kandris finds another group of wayward Mandalorians near the docks. These Mandalorians are far more amenable to joining Kandris than Isak was on Dantooine, though his men did fall in line after their leader's death at Ordo's hands. Both groups of Mandalorians will bolster the forces amassing on Duxun for the big fight that's coming soon. Before we go to Korriban, we will take a detour to M478. 
We're putting this here because, narratively speaking, it's better to leave off on Korriban than some world that wasn't even included in the game. Location profile in 478. Much like Slaheron in Knights of the Old Republic 1, M478 was cut from KOTOR 2 due to deadline issues. Also like Slaheron, M478 became part of the Legends continuity through later references. Sadly, however, M478 has not been brought forward into the new canon, at least not yet. Chris Parker, a producer on Knights of the Old Republic 2, later said that cutting the droid planet was the smartest thing they did from a production perspective. They needed to flesh out other parts of the game, and the additional planet took up too much space, so they jettisoned it and moved some of the missions to other maps. For example, the docking pylon puzzle on Nar was originally on M478. The other reason is because they realized the plot was nearly identical to the story that occurs on the Paragus mining facility, as you'll see in a moment. The files for M478 originally left on the Xbox game disc, but taken off the PC version that was released a couple of months later. The files were eventually mined from cut content, and the planet was added as a mod alongside the restored content mod. The fact that the, fact that the planet was cut early and had very little in the way of complete, completed dialogue for the exile, uh, with only voice work for NPCs, which caused problems for modders trying to restore the world since the exile's lines are unknown. We don't even know what uh, the light side and dark side choices on M. 478R, though the light side option likely had something to do with powering up the central droid intelligence that runs the war world and giving the droids autonomy. Confusingly, the central droid intelligence was also named M478. While many of the planet's areas already had texture packs and other design touches added, much of the background graphics are either totally missing or simply covered in a thick case. In fact, the central droid Intelligence units all look like shark sharks kept in aquariums, and we have absolutely no idea if that was intended or just a placeholder of some kind. We're going to break. We're going to break down how the story would have played out if M four seventy eight had been left in, though we aren't totally sure about that either. So here's how the story was supposed to play out on M four seventy eight, or at least how we think it was. Many years before 3951, droids were sent from an unknown world by an unknown species to prepare the planet that would become M478 for colonization. The droid intelligence in charge was named M478, and it had two assistant droid AIs called IS-24 and ES-05, which handled industrial production and environmental concerns, respectively. Sometime after this, the Sith found the planet and claimed to be the colonizers the droids were programmed to serve. <clears throat> M-478 then ordered the droids to follow all Sith commands. The Sith ordered IS-24 and ESO-5 to create a massive droid army and shut down M-478 to conserve power. At some point, Jedi Master Lonavash and her Padawan Ka-Otak arrived on M478 after discovering the Sith presence there. Vash's Padawan was a whiz with computers and was able to hack into ESO5 systems, convincing the droid that the Sith weren't their masters. Then, Otak and ESO5 created a plan to destroy the Sith by leaking radiation across the entire world, killing everything that wasn't a droid. The Sith caught onto the plan and sabotaged IS-24 and ESO-5 so that reactivating M-478 would be more difficult, and they attacked Vash and Otak's position, separating them. Master Vash was knocked unconscious and separated from Otak, who believed his master had died. Otak then began a campaign to rid all the Sith from M-478 and protect the world. When the Ebon Hawk arrived, only droid party members could move about the planet because of the radiation. Eventually, that was cleared, and the exile met IS-24, who agreed to reactivate M-478, but needed ESO-5 to agree as well. Otak believed the exile to be a Sith Lord preparing for occupation and impersonated ESO-5 before sending out waves of droids. The exile would fight their way to Otak and explain the situation before having the option to redeem or kill the Padawan. The exile would then get ESO-5 to agree to reactivate M-478, and be allowed to enter the droid's mainframe where Vash was alive. 
the exile would have the choice to kill Vash or ask her to meet on Dantooine with the others. There you go. Everything you ever wanted to know about M478, and we told it all during the trip to Korriban. We'll also take time in transit to turn Brianna into a Jedi. Since a female exile and Brianna never have these conversations in game, we will just have to assume that it goes the same as the conversation with a male exile without the sexual undertones. Or maybe they would remain. Who are we to say? Most of Brianna's loyalty quest comes from fighting a series of duels with the exile. Brianna believes that the only way to truly know your opponent is to do battle with them, and she thus challenges Surik to three duels, each of which has different armor and weapon limitations. But there's more, and it occurs just before the third and final duel. During the duels, Brianna will begin to open up about her mother, an ex-Jedi named Aaron Kay. However, Kreia speaks with the exile before the final duel to warn, to warn her about Brianna. If you recall, Kreia doesn't talk about the other characters' background, backgrounds very much, except to condescend to them like she did with Mandalore on Duxun. But when it comes to Aaron Kay, Kreia can't shut up. For you see, Kreia knew Aaron Kay long ago when she was a member of the Jedi Order. Kay was said to have been a beautiful woman who fell in love with an Achani general named Usanus. The two had a daughter together, which was forbidden by the increasingly stringent Jedi High Council. The girl was kept a closely guarded secret for more than a decade until she was discovered and the Jedi exiled Kay. She left Brianna and Usanis behind, joining her former student Revan at the beginning of the Mandalorian Wars with the Republic in 3964. Usanis eventually followed Kay, and they both died by the end of the Mandalorian Wars. Kay above Malachor V, and Usanis at the hands of Darth Revan in an honor duel. This left Brianna without a family. Kreia relays all of this through exposition. She distrusts Brianna and forbids the exile from training her in the ways of the Jedi. Kreia has surface-level concerns about Brianna, most of which boil down to her being a servant of Atris, and Atris isn't to be trusted. While this is sage advice, there's more to it than Kreia's normal distrust. Kreia says that, quote, the force flows strongly in the blood of those born to force sensitives, end quote. The exile, however, detects something more in Kreia's words and probes deeper. Surik asks why Brianna shouldn't be trained in the force as a Jedi, which causes Kreia to scoff, quote, one does not need to be a Jedi to learn the ways of the force. I suspect it cares little for our codes and philosophies, end quote. Kreia encourages the exile to use a more gray form of teaching and not to adhere to the dogmatic views of the Jedi to rely solely on her innate ability to form force bonds and lead others. This option allows Sarek to exert her natural influence over Brianna and complete the task without becoming closer to Brianna through the master-apprentice relationship. But, of course, Mitra Sarek would not be dissuaded because of Kraya's past and her obvious jealousy. After this dialogue, the exile can begin the third duel with Brianna, and once the Handmaiden is defeated, she will agree to train as a Jedi under Surik. Though Brianna did make a vow to Atris, she cares more about her mother's legacy as a Jedi than an oath sworn to a master who obviously did not care. Surik, meanwhile, cares more about rebuilding the Jedi Order than Kraya's schemes. Once Mitra Surik begins to train Brianna as a Jedi Guardian, both Kraya and Atris can feel it through the force, and each bitterly marks this betrayal by their respective students. However, Kraya can't stay mad at the exile for very long because Korriban awaits. Kraya will be our tour guide around Korriban as she refuses to set foot on the planet, but barges in to comment on the world via her force bond with Surik. Kraya's reasoning for sitting out the festivities on Korriban is that the world is very strong in the dark side, and she finds it difficult to center herself. According to Kraya, the world holds few secrets for her, but many that the exile needs to discover. Korriban is also where we begin to hear more about the true Sith threat that Revan went to investigate in the Unknown Regions. This was intended to foreshadow the story in KOTOR 3, but instead became part of the Old Republic MMO. Location Ketchup, Korriban. 
We have visited the Sith Tomb World a number of times, most recently five years ago, just before the Battle of Ricotta Prime. A lot has changed since Revan raided four tombs and then fought a running skirmish to escape the Sith Academy. When we were here in 3956, the settlement of Dresde held stores, Sith hopefuls, and Zerka employees keeping the place up and running. Now Dresde, now Dresde lies in ruins, the docks and drunkside cantina both closed for good. Sandstorms and vicious winds still howl, and vicious beasts protect the barren waste, so at least some things never change. In 3956, following Riven's bloody skirmish that left the Sith Academy devoid of students, the remaining Sith on Korriban fell to infighting. Without Uthar Wynn, the former headmaster, or Darth Malak to lead them, the Sith turned on one another. Darth Sion was present on Korriban when Riven sacked the Academy, and the Sith Civil War truly began. Saying the fighting began... Sion says the fighting began prior to Malak's death. For two years, petty Sith warlords fought for power, but the world was abandoned before the Republic was able to investigate. In 3954, those Republic scouts found Korriban completely devoid of sentient life. It had once again become a tomb world. Little did they know that the Sith weren't all killed, but rallied behind Darth Sion and followed him to Malakor V to join the Sith Triumvirate. The, Re- the Republic scouts found little more than a desolate hellscape covered in sand and death. The Valley of the Dark Lords was looted with each of the tombs Revan visited being caved in. The only tomb that is accessible to Surik is that of the Sith Lord Ludo Kresh. Jedi Master Lana Vash went to Korriban in 3952 following Qatar, but was trapped and ambushed by Darth Sion. The Sith Lord t- tortured Vash for some time, but killed her and left the body as a message to Surik about an hour before her arrival in 3951. Much like Dantooine, Korriban is a recycled map from KOTOR 1, not just in the sense that we revisit the worlds, but also that they literally lifted both map designs from the original in order to save time. That brings us to Canon Alert 37. The Episode 9 Visual Dictionary strikes again. Naga Sadao was canonized in a description for Exegol, an ancient hidden Sith world that appears in the new film. Probably. We say probably because the Visual Dictionary only lists Sadao's last name with no additional information and there could be some other figure associated with the Sith named Sadao. The Visual Dictionary contains a picture of Exegol with some notable locations listed, including a geographical feature called the Sadao Escarpment. An escarpment is a steep slope or ridge like the edge of a plateau. So it appears that the hidden Sith world has a plateau ridge named after Naga Sadao. In Legends, the ancient Sith lords started the Great Hyperspace War in 5000 before the Battle of Yavin, and you can hear more about Sadao's escapades in episodes 2.2 and 2.3. Naga Sadao may never show up as more than this small nod, but at least he's in the canon again, probably. And we have Canon Alert 38. Hot on the heels of Naga Sadao, the Visual Dictionary canonizes another Old Republic character, this time by their full name. This one comes from one of the entries on the sacred texts that Rey took from Octo in The Last Jedi, and that are subsequently used as a plot device in The Rise of Skywalker. The Visual Dictionary shows one of the sacred Jedi texts laying open with some annotations made by later scholars, specifically noting that one was written by Jedi Master Odan Ur. In Legends, Odan Ur was a Drathos Jedi Master who we first meet in the Dark Lords of the Sith arc of Tales of the Jedi, which occurs around 3997 BBY. A much younger Odan Ur then had a much larger role in the two Tales of the Jedi prequel arcs, The Golden Age of the Sith and Fall of the Sith Empire, both of which take place in 5000 BBY. We know nothing of his actions in canon or when he lived, but we do know that the Jedi Master seems to have retained his affinity for studying history from legends. When the Ebon Hawk descends onto Korriban's surface, it touches down in the center of the Valley of the Dark Lords, where Revan and his companions found the final star map five years earlier. 
Sarek disembarks the ship with uh, Michael and T3M4 as companions and Kreia playing the role of an omniscient narrator. Though the map was reused, the valley has changed slightly to have the four tombs from the last game line the walls of the valley, two on each side. That's okay, because the Valley of the Dark Lords, shown in the Knights of the Old Republic games, is fairly unimpressive given the other portrayals that we've seen. In the KOTOR games, the valley looks like a slightly sunken pit or archaeological dig site, which was the in-game reason they gave for this appearance in the first game, instead of a grand necropolis honoring the worst beings to ever live. Conversely, in Tales of the Jedi in the video game Jedi Academy, the valley is portrayed as deep, as deep canyon walls with dozens of tombs dotting the walls with a large mausoleum in the center. So we'll just chalk this version up of this version of Korriban up to graphical limitations and archaeology and move on. The valley floor is dotted with Sith corpses and Kreia warns that they are protected by beast known as HSSISS. I'll let you decide on the pronunciation which were Force-sensitive lizards the size of dogs with dark side poison in their veins and the ability to become invisible. Plus, Kreia says, it's not like the Exile needs anything from these corpses. They don't even have good loot. On the other hand, the corpses do usually have a lot of grenades or mines. The Hissises aren't hard to fight, and who cares if Kreia gets mad? So Sarek and her companions do some light grave robbing, but all of the tombs are inaccessible. When Sirik approaches each of the old tombs, Kreia will comment about the particular Dark Lord in question. She calls Tula Kord, the preeminent lightsaber duelist in Sith history, and says that the old Sith, the true Sith, could use the Force like gods compared to the Force users of 3951. Kreia says the tomb of Nagasadao is where Revan found the star map and where Headmaster Uthar Wen died at the hands of redeemed student Uthar Aban. Two of Kraya's commentaries about the tombs are interesting. When Surik approaches the tomb of Marka Ragnos, Kraya notes that she is standing on the spot where Nagasadao and Ludo Kresh first dueled for the title of Dark Lord of the Sith following Ragnos' death. This duel appeared in Tales of the Jedi, the Golden Age of the Sith, and we discussed it in episodes 2.1 and 2.2. We just wanted to note that reference to Tales of the Jedi. In comparison to the history lesson she gives outside of Ragnus' tomb, she had nothing but vitriol for Ajunta Paul, the first Dark Lord of the Sith. As you no doubt recall, Revan went on a redemption spree on Korriban before cleansing the Sith Academy. He redeemed Yuthraban, that random Aquilish Force-sensitive, Dustil Onasi, and Ajunta Paul. It's very rare that Kraya has anything bad to say about Revan. She loves the guy almost as much as Kandras Ordo, but she hates the redemption of Paul. And her reasoning is actually normal and not 12th dimensional chess Randian nonsense. Kraya questions whether such a soul can be truly redeemed after a lifetime of evil deeds and dying as the supreme master of the dark side. She says that such is a turning away from one's true self and is nothing short of a betrayal of the self. Though she's letting on far more than she intends to because she knows all about the dark side. By this point, Kraya trusts the exile about as much as she can possibly trust anything. Despite the way her influence tends to seesaw randomly, as we discussed on Narshada, Surak has enough influence to get all the secrets out of Kraya. That includes her history as Darth Trya, Dark Lord of the Sith, and leader of the Sith Triumvirate. Even if you haven't heard us say it several times by now, it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that Kraya was previously a Sith Lord. Even Atten Rand notices when he and Sirk discuss Kraya. Rand says, quote, All that talk of hatred, manipulation, and standing on your own two feet? Sorry, you don't get any more Sith than that, end quote. When Kraya reveals her past via flashback, it gets its own cutscene. It's a moment we've discussed a few times but now we actually get to see the betrayal of Darth Trya. The cutscene begins on Malachor 5 in the Trias core with Kreia narrating. Remember that Kreia changes appearances when she becomes Treya, donning black robes, using black circlets to tie back her braids, and her eyes become jet black as opposed to their normal atrophied white. 
She says that there are places in the galaxy, ancient sources of knowledge, where most would fear to tread, places like Malachor V. This is where she taught Scion to tap into the dark side more fully, making him almost almost immortal through his reliance on the Force. This is also where she taught Nihilus how to feed on the Force more efficiently, leading to the desolation of Qatar in 3952. And this is where Trio would be toppled from power. As she meditated in the Treus core, Trio was attacked by her students. Darth Sion approached with his red lightsaber drawn, while Darth Nihilus needed only the force as his ally. Trio rose to fight her betrayers, but she had underestimated them. Nihilus incapacitated his master with Force Crush, throwing her against one of the stone columns and pinning her there. Trio's lightsaber was knocked away, but she couldn't retrieve it because her two Sith apprentices had severed her connection to the Force. Trya was helpless to resist Scion's merciless beating, with Nihilus keeping her pinned in place. Scion's beatdown of Trya is probably the most savage hand-to-hand fighting we ever see in Star Wars. Scion lifts Trya off the ground by her throat, knees her, bashes her head into the stone column repeatedly, and finally slams her unconscious body to the ground. Darth Trya had been betrayed and exiled by the Sith, just as she had been by the Jedi years earlier. As the flashback ends, Kreia sums up her past pretty well. Quote, What do you wish to hear? That I once believed in the code of the Jedi? That I felt the call of the Sith? That perhaps once I held the galaxy by its throat? That for every good work that I did, I brought equal harm upon the galaxy? That perhaps what the greatest Sith lords knew of evil, they learned from me? End quote. Kreia knows she must atone for those sins, and she's going to do it the only way she can, by killing the Force. That's the last we'll get from Cryo until Dantooine, but she does vow that once this whole adventure is over, she will answer all of the Exiles questions. All right, let's get back on track in the game. The only exit from the Valley of the Dark Lords is through a Shirak cave, the very one where Revan killed a Tarentatek and found the robes of Duron Keldroma five years ago. Sarek's companions will comment on the foul stench emanating from the cave, but also agree to press forward to find the power emanating from within. After killing a bunch of the Shirax, Surik is drawn by the Force across a narrow bridge over a deep chasm to the last intact tomb on Korriban, the tomb of Ludo Kresh. The bridge is reminiscent of the downed columns that Exar Kun climbed over when he visited the Sith homeworld in 3997. The corpse of the Terentatek Revan killed lies near the door, so he wasn't too far from the entrance, though the door was covered in debris and rocks when he passed by. There are obviously hundreds of other tombs in the valley, but they are covered in thousands of years of sand and dust, so all we get is Naga Sadao's old foe. But this tomb isn't about the Sith Lord, it's about Surik's Force visions and what they reveal. Kraya breaks in to say that this is a journey meant only for Mitra Surik, and thus she must continue on alone. However, it should be noted that the exile must be sufficiently aligned with the light or the dark to enter. Ludo Kresh will broker no gray Jedi, apparently. At the base of the door, purple force energy pulses as these ruins have laid mostly untouched since 5000 BBY after Korriban was raised by the Republic following their victory in the Great Hyperspace War. Inside the tomb lay the corpses of several Jedi who were killed by the numerous traps that lay within. Surik experiences four Force visions within. A flashback to her decision to follow Revan and Malak into the Mandalorian Wars, reliving the horrors of war she experienced during the Battle of Duxun in 3961, a duel between her companions, and a fight against Darth Revan himself. Like most Force visions, things aren't always what they seem. The first vision takes Surik back to the time that she was recruited by Malak to fight in the Mandalorian Wars. This would have taken place in 3963 because Malak didn't go by that name or have blue head tattoos until then. The vision starts out as a flashback with Malak trying to secure new recruits by preaching of the failures of the Jedi Council. Surik takes her place along with five other Jedi, one of whom is a young Bastila Shan. 
the other four Jedi filled in with character are filled in with character models based on face options available to the player to choose at the start of the game, two male and two female. These four Jedi are named Zaset Terep, Talvan Isan, Nisatsa, and Karyaga Sin. And we have no idea what those are references to or anything. This is the only time they show up at all. As Malik's pitch continues, the perspective of the vision subtly switches from Surik's memory to a dark side manifestation trying to turn her. Malik and the other Jedi are no longer memories, but dark side apparitions testing her resolve and making her interrogate her choice to join the revanchist. But Surik doesn't yet realize that. Malik switches from the present tense he used up to this point to the past tense, asking the exile if she made the right decisions. Did Surik go to war because of insatiable insatiable bloodlust, or was it to protect the innocent? Surik recalls that her choice wasn't based on some warmongering instinct or even revenge, but the need to protect the outer rim and the fringes of the Republic. Finally, Surik plainly states plainly that she wouldn't do anything differently, but Malik then asks why she would decide to follow Revan and Malik to war, but not after Malik or five. Suddenly, Surik realizes that all five Jedi have sided with Malik, and she knows something's not right because Bastila didn't join at that time. She remained loyal to the council. The vision of Malik is unflinching and demands to know if she would have made the same choice to turn away from the dark side like she did after Malachor V. When Surik denies Malik and the dark side again, the vision says that the time for word, words is over and lightsabers are drawn. Malik, Bastila, and the four random Jedi all attack Surik at once, and she must defend herself. A brutal lightsaber duel ensues and sees Surik successfully defeat the visions of her past, but the lure of the dark side remains. After fighting more Shirak, Surik comes upon the next step in her vision quest. It is time for one more PTSD-filled visit to the Battle of Daksun in 3961. You'll recall that in episode 6.5, Alexa, Play Fortunate Son, we discussed Surik's horrific experience as the general in charge of implementing Revan's plan to retake the moon. Revan's first invasion attempt using the overwhelming force of battle droids failed spectacularly as the Mandalorians were dug in far too deep, having had some 34 years to lay minefields, install booby traps, and somehow make the humid death trap that is Daksun even worse. Thus, Revan ordered Surik to probe the Mandalorian defenses for weaknesses using hundreds of coordinated feints across the moon. Surik followed her orders, and thousands of soldiers under her command died as her forces made incremental progress. All told, the Battle of Duxun lasted months and claimed the lives of more than 75% of Surik's forces, but it was a successful operation. As you can no doubt imagine, experiencing the horrors of war like this and seeing so many of the troops under your command die took a toll on Surik. Before the end, she began to question Revan's orders and why they were even fighting for a useless moon on the edge of the inner rim. The Force vision in Ludo Kresh's tomb is another twisted memory from Surik's past, this time the final moments of the Battle of Daksun. The twist here, as opposed to the previous memory, is that Surik does regret some of these decisions. Now, we previously said that Surik led her soldiers in a daring charge across the final minefield, and we said that because we mixed it up with another instance where she led a different charge. Sorry about that. In fact, we find that one of the Exile's greatest regrets is her failure to lead her forces across the minefield leading to Mandalore, the Ultimate's Jungle HQ. In the memory, Surik is confronted by one of her soldiers who asks if the final charge is necessary. Surik says that the final charge is essential, but realizes he should have been a better general. After all, if the Jedi go to war, they must go about it the right way. This gets at the heart of an issue that is ever-present in Star Wars. How can the Jedi be galactic peacekeepers without becoming violent warhawks? It seems inevitable that the Jedi, as keepers of peace and justice, would be compelled to fight in battles to protect the innocent. Indeed, that was the the reason that Revan and his followers pushed for the Republican Jedi to declare war, to protect civilians. 
Whatever their later sins may be, everything we know says that the revanchists have pure intentions for joining the war at the outset. We see that play out in Surik's reaffirmation of her earlier decision to follow Malik and Revan in the first vision. She was right to go to war, even if war is hell. The problem came with how the Jedi let the war change them, which is what the second vision is concerned with. The Exile does have the option to double down on her decision to send her troops running in, but why? Surik has already seen that play out and didn't like it one bit. No, this time she volunteers to go in alone. A suicide mission to clear out the mines and take out the small garrison of Mandalorians waiting. Republic soldiers thank Surik for her bravery and she begins disarming mines or just stepping on them to trigger if she doesn't have any demolition skill points because she just used companions for that. I mean, I don't know who would do that. Definitely not me. Uh, regardless, Surik clears the mines and her troops charge in behind her to take out the last Mandalorians and their last stronghold. The decision to join the war was was just, but the means employed once there were lacking. In Empire Strikes Back, Yoda says that wars not make one great, and he's right, but that doesn't mean you don't have to fight sometimes. In Star Wars Rebels, Yoda also says that victory is important, but the means one uses to to achieve that victory just as, if not more important. Or at least what the, that's what this vision seems to be saying to us. Please write in and let us know if you interpret these visions differently. As far as we know, they've never been officially explained. What's clear is that the, is that the XL can get a little closure on her failure from a decade, decade earlier. Two visions down, two to go. The next two are much shorter, though. But before we can continue, Sarek finds the body of a dead Jedi holding a data pad. This Jedi was named Nebelish, and he encountered visions just like Sarek, but didn't fare so well and died during his quest. This no-name dead Jedi wouldn't even merit a mention if it weren't for the fact that he was supposed to be Dustil Onasi, Karth's son, who Revan helped redeem in Kotor 1. The game originally had a much different and darker encounter before it was cut. In this version, Dustil would have escaped the dark side with Revan and Karth's help, only to fall prey to it again later. By the time the exile found him, Dustil had been stranded in the tomb for some time and gone insane from the recurring visions. Visions where he had to duel his father. Sometimes Karth won, but usually it was Dustil. No matter what the exile said, Dustil would believe them to be another force vision that can read his thoughts in the end. The exile would attempt to leave only to be attacked by an insane, raving Dustil Onasi. The sequence was eventually cut from the game, but the dead Jedi Nebelish still has the still same character model from GOTOR 1. We don't know when the segment was removed, but it couldn't have been at the very end of production since no voiceover fills were ever recorded. Some have suggested that the content was cut to use the character in future games, though we now know that never happened. Moving deeper into the tomb, Surik noticed purple currents of force energy pooling on the walkway as she encounters the third vision. Surik sees Kraya, but she looks different. The player recognizes Kraya dressed in black robes with black hair ties and black eyes as Darth Triah from the flashback to her exile from the Seth Triumvirate. But Surik didn't see that. We got to watch the cutscene of Triah's fall, but Surik just got the story. When Kraya begins to speak, Surik can scoff and give some meta-commentary about how she knows this is a vision, but it's not that simple. This one isn't a twisted memory, but a vision of the present and a real choice Surik will have to make in the near future. If the first vision centered with centered on the choice to join the Mandalorian Wars, and the second dealt with the war itself, then the third vision focuses on the consequences that flow therefrom. Kreia says that the exile has already visited the past in her previous visions, but this one concerns the present. If it is the present and Kreia is wearing all black, that means that the Force is showing Surik an illusion of Kreia as she truly is, without the facade that she has erected. The Exile has no idea what this means and doesn't even comment on Kreia's black garb, but for the first time, Surik sees the true Kreia. 
Yes, it's clear by now that Kreia has her own agenda, but she closely guards information about herself and censors much of it until she believes that Surik is ready to hear it. But Kreia can control a force vision that shows Surik the true Kreia and makes her intentions plain. Almost as soon as Kreia begins to speak, Atten bursts in, lightsabers drawn, claiming that she's a dark Jedi. Kreia turns to Atten, who is soon joined by by Baudur, both claim that Surik's master is a dark Jedi, while Kreia tries to play it off. Suddenly, T3M4 appears and beeps what appears to be agreement with Atten and Baudur. Kreia's had enough of these accusations and threatens the three companions before turning to Surik. The exile must choose between the woman who saved her life and who has been like a cantankerous surrogate mother versus the new Jedi that Surik is cultivating and the friends she trusts. If Surik begins to side with her friends, Kreia will admit that she has fallen to the dark side but asks for the chance to find redemption, just like Surik had. At this point, the restored content mod at this point in the restored content mod, all the companions are present and backing Atten, Baldur, and T3. Sarek will try to avoid the question, not wanting to choose, but when she does, Kreia admonishes, quote, Apathy is death, worse than death, because at least a rotting corpse feeds the beast and insects, end quote. Then the companions turn to Sarek one by one and take turns assuring her that apathy is death. You must choose a side. You can't save everyone. You can't hide from the pain. You have to feel it all. It doesn't matter which side Surik chooses here, because there are no light-dark alignment shifts in any of these visions. But soon enough, she's going to have to make the decision between her master and her companions. She won't be able to save them all. This isn't KOTOR. There's no medal ceremony and feel-good moment at the end of the game, and the exile is going to learn that harsh lesson soon enough. So let's just say she sided with Kraya to give her a shot at redemption. As Sirik moves on to the final vision, we're about to get a glimpse of our old friend Darth Revan in all his glory. In the final chamber of Ludo Crush's tomb, the exile encounters her former mentor, Darth Revan, flanked by a mirror version of herself clad in dark robes, serving as Revan's Sith apprentice. Revan says no words, but instead begins the attack as the dark side exile fades away. Darth Revan is clad in his familiar black robes, wearing his iconic mask and dual-wielding lightsabers, one purple, one red. Revan is an unflinching foe who forces the exile to fight or die. Clearly evocative of Luke's force vision on Dagobah and the Empire Strikes Back, as he bests Darth Vader in a brief duel only to find out that he was wearing the armor. He had given in to the dark side only briefly, but that led to his downfall. On Korriban, Sir gets no quick fight. It's a brutal battle between a student and her master, between a woman who spent years in exile fighting the only father figure she ever really had. Because if Star Wars is about anything... It's about killing your dad, and Surik does that here. She sees what might have been had she followed Revan, a dark lord of the Sith, serving as her surrogate father's apprentice, ruling the galaxy. In cut content, the exile would have fought her own shadow during the fight with Revan. The dark exile would have used no force powers, but would have been a damaged sponge, making the fight far more difficult. However, this was removed, and the dark exile simply fades away before the duel begins. Nothing more than a shadowy reminder of the dark side within all of us. The dark side that can overcome us if we give in. Or it could be that we're reading far too much into these visions since, as we've already discussed, they've never been openly interpreted by the writers and parts of them are obviously cut for time. As Surik as Sarek reaches the heart of the tomb where Ludocrish's sarcophagus rests, she hears the voice of Kreia congratulate her on passing this trial of the Force. Sarek isn't so sure, saying that she feels the tomb changed her and not for the better, but Kreia says this is just overestimating the tomb. The changes are intrinsic to Sarek's nature and personality because she knows the true path. Kreia says that the glimpses Surik has seen will guide her in the future because even if the visions seem confusing and brief, quote, sometimes a momentary insight is worth lifetimes of experience, end quote. 
Gray's voice comes from the doorway to Kresha's final resting place, which opened for the first time in 1,049 years after Sirik passed the test. Strangely enough, we don't know if the voice at the end of the tomb was Kreia, or Kreia speaking as Darth Treya, or just another Force illusion meant to comfort Sirik. After talking with Kreia, Sirik loots the body of Ludo Kresh, taking his Sith war sword and armband, and leaves the tomb to continue her journey through Korriban. Upon exiting the tomb, the only place left to go is into the Sith Academy to find Jedi Master Lana Vash. However, the moment Sirik enters the Academy, a cutscene begins showing Darth Sion meditating within. The Dark, the dark Lord suddenly feels a disturbance in the Force and learns that the Exile is there. He sends out Sith assassins to find and capture her. Sirik and her companions comb the tombs of the Academy seeking master vash we know that mira was one of the one of the companions who accompanied sirk into the academy because of art showing her fighting a sith assassin in the ultimate visual guide don't ever say that we don't get just the most useless minutia you know we, that that's 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 what we do. Uh, Mira has become a proficient Jedi and is also and is wielding a double bladed lightsaber, both because she is trained with the weapon, but also because it's funny to see a short character wielding a weapon taller than they are. When we get to the very end of the Old Republic narrative with the Darth Bane trilogy, we will have reason to revisit this with Darth Xana who was canonically quite short and used a double, a red double-bladed lightsaber. Yes, if you're following this joke to its logical and awful conclusion, that means she was canonically Little Xan. Enough of that foolishness, though. Surik, Mira, and let's say T3 find a set of thorium charges that can be used to break open the door of former Headmaster Uthar Wynn's chambers. If the player sets Revan as dark side at the beginning of the game, a large pyramidal Sith holocron will be present in the room with a message from dark side Bastila of all people. She recounts the fate of Darth Revan following KOTOR 1. Essentially, Revan was preparing to destroy the Republic with his newly unified Sith fleet, but was called to the unknown regions by a mysterious memory, causing the Sith to fall to infighting and begin the Sith Civil War. However, if Revan was light side, as is the case with our canonical playthrough, then the holocron was destroyed by using the thorium charges to open the door. Don't worry, we'll get one more glimpse of the real Bastila before this game ends. The rest of the Academy holds few secrets, aside from getting to goof off in the Sith Academy computer system again, which does contain a super deep reference to Tales of the Jedi. The computer says that 20 Sith performed the sacred burial ritual of Marco Ragnos in 5000 BBY, with Ludo Kresh in the sixth position, and Simus, another Sith Lord who is actually just a head in a jar and tails, in the 16th position. Other than that, it's pretty standard fare. The companions fight a group of ravenous Tukata in a training exercise meant for Sith students and easily defeat the beasts. No matter how quick the victory, the companions are all sent to detention for failing the test. Unsurprisingly, detention at the Sith Academy is just a torture chamber with a few electrified cages and control terminals. In the closest torture cages, Surik finds the body of Master Lunavash, which lies mangled in a pool of blood. Mira notes that the body was left like this as a warning for the exile, and if HK-47 were here, he could take samples and find that the Jedi was killed within one hour of their arrival. A datapad diary found on Vash's body curses her capture, but says she created an account in the computer system that will allow for Cirque to open a back door into the valley. We thought about doing a character profile for Lana Vash, but since we don't know anything other than exactly what's in KOTOR 2, we'll skip it. Cut content would have allowed Cirque and her companions to find Ka Otuk, Lana Vash's Padawan, who is also an M478. Ka would have been driven mad being locked in the old Sith Academy and fallen to the dark side. The exile had the choice to kill or redeem Otuk. Though we don't know what words were exchanged, none of Otuk's dialogue was ever recorded. 
Originally, Lana Vash was also alive and would have agreed to return to Dantooine before sacrificing herself to duel Darth Sion alone and give the companions time to escape. This scene has been reconstructed by fans and is available to view online if you're so inclined. But that was all removed. Instead, Vash lies dead in a heap, and there's a skeleton on the torture table that could be Ka-Otuk's body, but how his flesh would have decomposed in such a short time is a mystery. Uh, meanwhile, Surik is left to face off against Darth Sion herself is left to face off against Darth Sion herself, who she finds on one of the walkways as she's trying to escape. Sion approaches and taunts the exile, quote, Did you come here for answers? There are none. The call of Korriban is strong, but it is the call of the dead, end quote. This is where Sirk learns that Darth Sion was one of, uh, one of the apprentices who cast Trya out, uh, it's also where she learns that Sion has studied everything about her and seems quite jealous of Sirik's relationship with Kreia, because while Sion hates Kreia, he also loves her desperately. As we will learn, Sion also loves the exile in a very twisted way. Sion says that Kreia hopes to find a student as talented as her first apprentice, a sly reference to Revan. When Sirik asks why Sion cares about Kreia, it becomes personal. Sion hates Kreia and says in no uncertain terms that his goal is to destroy everything she has tried to build and kill her as she watches it crumble. Before the duel begins, Sion sums up the exile's life in a somewhat pit- fitting epitaph. Quote, I know the fires that raged upon Dexun while the Republic died around you. You know war, you know battle, and I know of Malachor. You saw the heart of war, what Malachor wrought, yet turned away, end quote. At that, Sion's Sith assassins readied. The Dark Lord ignited his red lightsaber while Surik and Mira lit theirs, and the duel commenced. Here, we find out why Sion is truly the Lord of Pain. We've said before that Sion is functionally immortal, and that's totally accurate. Despite making light work of the Sith Assassin, Sion is more than a match for the Tree of Companions by himself, as he liberally uses Fourth powers and has massive reserves of health. Finally, when Surik strikes Sion down and it seems that one Sith Lord is dead, he rises again harder and stronger. Sion cannot be killed at the Sith Academy, a fact that Surik learns after killing him a few more times only to see him come back to life. In fact, he really can't be killed anywhere unless he wills it. This is how Darth Trya taught him to rely more fully on the Force and completely immerse himself in the dark side. Sion's mottled and sliced flesh only stays on his bones because that reliance on the Force. He literally wills himself to overcome death through the Force out of spite and hatred. He's been killed dozens of times and come back from every one of those. Finally, after Sion uses self-res a few times, Kryia breaks in through their force bond, telling Surik to flee. Kryia says that Sion can't be defeated while the strength of the dark side on Korriban flows through him. Surik accepts the truth and flees for the safety of the Iban Hawk with her companions. As she departs, we see another subtle difference between male and female exiles. If the exile is male, Sion has a lengthy monologue vowing to hunt down and kill him to deprive Kryia of the son she truly loves. In this role, Sion plays the neglected son who has a brotherly rivalry for motherly affection. If, on the other hand, the exile is female, Sion will quietly and wistfully tell his assassins to let Surik leave because she has earned the right and they will meet again. Chris Avalone, lead producer on KOTOR 2, once said he couldn't write happy romances. One member of the couple always ended up dead if he's writing it. Instead, Avalone says he prefers to write stories about, quote, unrequited, melancholy, quiet suffering whenever possible, end quote. That perfectly describes both Darth Sion's feelings for Surik and Atris's feelings for a male exile. Surik and her companions escape Korriban aboard the Ebon Hawk, headed for Daxun. As the ship jumps to hyperspace, we wanted to give you a brief rundown of where all the characters and big forces are before our brief hiatus. Across the galaxy, there's a little sense of stability as the Republic's survival balances on the edge of a knife. Uh, 
Above Narshadag, Goto told Surik that the Republic had 30 standard days until collapse, but that was before she secured an alternate fuel source from Slaheron via Vaga the Hut. Major Surik also defended Dantooine from the Exchange Crime Syndicate and preserved the world for the Jedi, a measure supported by Republic Admiralty. However, the work isn't complete as the Onderon Civil War rages between supporters of General Vaklu and Quintalia. If Vaklu wins and Onderon secedes, it will cause numerous nearby systems to leave the Republic too. Secession of this magnitude would be the final nail in the Republic's coffin. We haven't really seen much of the Republic so far, but they will be out in force during the Battle of Telos IV. What little remains of the Republic fleet will be mustered there against the Sith fleet led by Darth Nihilus aboard the Ravager. The Sith meanwhile are in ever-present danger but show no signs of seeking to assume galactic power or forge a new empire. They seek the destruction of the Last Jedi, whom they believe to be Mitra Surik, and Nihilus wants to kill all life in the galaxy. Right now, science forces are on Korriban while Nihilus waits to strike at the edges of known space. But Jedi, on the other hand, are an afterthought. We said that after Qatar, there were eight Jedi left in the known galaxy, excluding Surik and her lost Jedi she trains informally. Well, that number was reduced to seven with the death of Master Vash. Surik has convinced Ruklamar and Zezkael to meet at the rebuilt Jedi Enclave on Dantooine and will get Kabar on board after saving Onderon. From there, Surik hopes to convince the Jedi to step out of the shadows and confront the Sith, but she's going to be disappointed by their intransigence. No, she's going to learn the only way to rebuild the Jedi is by burning the, exist- the entire existing order, what little is left anyway, to the ground and starting again. Hey. Thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Don't forget, we'll be on hiatus from the KOTOR 2 narrative for a couple of months after today. However, we will have new non-narrative episodes coming soon. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at FOTORPOD or email us at FOTORPODCAST at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm Atherton KD on Twitter. And I'm at Lucas Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again. and Thank you for, it's almost, I think it's a year now. We're really close to it. Pretty much. Thank, yeah, there you go. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.